0: Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to the Return a Property and Investment Podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn. Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Samantha Kemp, who is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Imo Capital, which is a groundbreaking investment manager using artificial intelligence to scale portfolios of single-family residential property into institutional rental portfolios. She cut her teeth managing portfolios at Blackstone, as well as working at PwC and Cushman and Wakefield. So she knows what she's talking about. Welcome to the podcast, Samantha, and thank you for joining me. It's all right. Very nice to be here. Thank you for the invite. So there's so many questions I want to ask you because I think what you're doing at Imo Capital is really, really exciting. Before we get started, though, can you briefly explain what your business does in layman's terms and more importantly, why?
1: Yeah, sure. So I, mean, I think you mentioned a little bit of it in the intro, but Imo Capital's really is a data-driven investment manager that uses technology across the entire value chain to aggregate single-family residential into rental portfolios on behalf of institutional investors. The reason we do is this is because the residential market is the largest asset class in the world, but only around 2% is currently accessible to institutions via built-to-rent or multifamily blocks. And the remaining 98% has been out of the reach of institutions because using traditional manual processes, it's just way too inefficient to source, underwrite, lease up, and, and manage these types of highly granular portfolios of scale. So... Unlocking this 98% of the market for institutional investors, such as pension funds or insurance funds, it it means rather than constantly building new homes, as a lot of them are currently doing with build-to-rents, we can take existing housing stock that's often been underinvested in for many years by unprofessional landlords, and we can essentially make it fit for purpose for consumers. We aren't attempting to draw people away from existing communities to new housing developments, but instead aiming to offer a housing product to consumers within the communities they currently live and in general, providing an overall better experience for them. And I think one of the big things that I always come back to is that one of the things really we believe at IMO is it's madness that for a consumer, you pay only like four euros, for example, for a cup of coffee at Starbucks, but for that four euros, you get a very consistent, decent cup of coffee, friendly customer service. Yet for tenants the largest expense of their lives is their rent. And sadly, the majority of the time, you only hear stories about how terrible their apartments are or how terrible the services that they're receiving from their landlords or property managers. And we really don't think that's right. And we also want to be solving that side of the equation. So to us, bringing in long-term investors such as pension and insurance funds allows us also to take a really long-term view on how to create the best stable rental product for both consumers and investors. So From our perspective, it's a win-win all
0: round for both sides. Love it. Absolutely love it. So on your website, you say you simplify the way people sell, rent and invest in real estate through technology. You've touched on definitely on the investment side of things there. Can you just walk me through how you actually simplify things from an investment perspective at each stage of the way? So whether that's lead generation right through to completion and then management. Yeah,
1: sure. So simplifying is one way to describe what we've done, because the tech element is really simplifying the residential experience, both for the customers, the sellers, the investors and the tenants. But as you will be very familiar with yourself personally, the actual processes around the residential value chain are anything but simple. And we've really spent the past three and a half years innovating and developing that technology to make the sourcing and scaling and then management of these portfolios possible possible. The key number one step to that has really been that technology and data are at the absolute core of Emo Capital. Um, the entire value chain has been developed to allow data to seamlessly flow from one function to the next, which is key to being able to manage efficiently at scale. But if we sort of talk specifically about the acquisition process, which is what you've asked, I can talk through and give a bit of an example there. So we source direct from consumers. They either come... Onto our website and get a valuation online, and then can book an inspection if they wish, or we source via the listing sites. So, all of the new leads flow into our system every night, and that can add up to several thousands over a month. And our platform automatically calculates an approximate sales and rental value to determine a potential yield. If one of the asset meets one of our investors' target investment criteria, it automatically flows. Into a shortlist and then we can book an inspection with the seller. To do this manually at these types of volumes is completely impossible. And believe me, we tried at the beginning, it can't be done. So when we go to do an inspection, we then capture about over 300 data points for every asset. And the combination of all these data points allows us to make a variety of automated calculations. For example, with the square meter area, the number of rooms, and the ceiling height, we can calculate the surface area of the walls and therefore what it would cost to repaint the property. By identifying the age of the fuse box, again, the size and the number of rooms, we can estimate the cost of rewiring the property. We also capture data points like the lumens and decibel levels within the property so that we can create an objective assessment around the rentability or the rental liquidity of the property. So, it's really about taking what are typically quite subjective elements and breaking them down into really small bite-sized data points that can be captured objectively and then used um, to automate calculations. So after the inspections completed, all of these data points are automatically flowing into our underwrite models, which is where a lot of these um, calculations are happening. And just when we first started out back in the day, just with Excel, it took us about six to seven hours to do a full underwrite to institutional quality standards. We've since developed our own online underwriting tool, which allows us to do a full underwrite within about 45 minutes about 90% of that underwrite is automated. And the final 10% is done though by the acquisition manager who, for example, checks that our machine learning tool has correctly selected the right sales and rental comps. The acquisition manager is making sure to get sign off from the various refurbishments and letting teams, the renovation costs and rental pricing is correct. So, our final acquisitions, it's very much informed, made smarter and more efficient by the technology. But the acquisition decision is still very much human led, which means naturally that we can get through a much higher volume of underwrites than sort of a typical manual process would allow. And we can also go from lead generation to being under offer on a property as quickly sometimes as 24 hours.
0: That's really amazing. Very impressive. Okay, so that sparks lots of other questions. I will start with one of the things you mentioned was returns. So, what, when you're looking at deal, I know you have a variety of different return requirements, but what would be a typical return that you'd be looking at in terms of maybe yields or also kind of capital appreciation targets?
1: Yeah, I mean, it really varies between investors. Some investors are very IRR focused and some are cash on cash driven. And naturally, this really depends on the locations as well. So for example, a very conservative investor might be much more focused on extremely low risk city center property within a top tier city and is therefore happy to take a cash on cash return of like three, three and a half percent. You'll then have other investors who potentially want more capital growth and are happy to in higher yields And are therefore happy to look more towards the commuter areas of a city, which are also incredibly resilient, but just able to offer slightly higher returns. And there they might be more IRR focused and looking at a sort of 8%, 10%, 12% IRR dependent upon location. So I think the beauty of SFR is that apartments and houses are everywhere across the world. The returns that this asset class can offer are hugely varied.
0: Awesome. Okay, that's very helpful. And I suppose just going back to the valuation point and using all those data points when you go to book an inspection. So you valued over 3000 properties using your technology and automated valuation model. No doubt the marginal cost of each valuation is much quicker and cheaper. But what's the actual difference between that and let's say 3000 RICS valuations in terms of, I guess, the process, which you've touched on already, but also the results?
1: Yeah, sure. I think we've actually valued closer to 30,000
0: properties. Have you? Did I get that wrong? <laughs> Pretty sure I found it on the internet somewhere.
1: <laughs> Maybe that was an old number, but uh, yeah, I think we're now up to about 30,000 properties. and oh,
0: Even more impressive.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we actually work very closely with RICS valuers. For example, we work with CBRE on our German portfolios. And together with their inputs, we've developed a machine learning comps-based valuation tool. We still get CBRE to value all of our acquisitions because that's often required from an institutional or regulatory perspective. But it's very much the final step of the process before we sign at the notary and commit the investor to buying the asset. But we're really pleased to say that the AVM algorithms that we had developed are now within about 7% of CBRE's valuations that they're doing. So we've also developed a very rapid independent valuation process with Seabury, which is what I was mentioning that happens at the very end of our acquisition process that allows them to be a lot faster with how they typically do valuations. It's a lot more cost efficient than typical commercial valuations, but it still adheres to Redbook standards. So we've worked really hard with them to make sure it's a really smooth sailing process there. The AVM that we have developed, the one I was referencing, is within 7% of CBRE's valuations. We use that at much earlier stages of our funnel so that we can more accurately price the thousands of leads that are coming in and also the offer prices that we are making on these properties. Using the AVM at these stages obviously allows us to move a lot more nimbly and it allows us to provide a much faster turnaround on offers for the sellers and ensures that as much as possible, we're trying to forecast what CBRE would potentially be valuing a little bit further down the value chain so that we're not having situations where CBRE potentially value our properties below what we've offered to the seller because we always make sure that we never pay above market for the investors. We're not, even if in theory, the return target return for that property allows us to potentially pay more money we wouldn't be doing that. We cap out our prices at markets always.
0: At that CBRE valuation? Yes. Uh, no, sorry. At, yeah, at the CBRE valuation. I think it's really interesting because at the moment, and certainly, I mean, the UK market and the German market are very different, but certainly in the UK market at the moment, a lot of people are talking about, you know, they're getting, they've agreed a price with the seller and then they're getting to their bank valuation and getting downvalued often by way more than 7%. And that's happening quite a lot in the market at the moment because people are feeling so cautious. So it's kind of amazing that you're managing to get it basically what's, I mean, this is kind of anecdotal evidence, but less of a drop between the RICS valuation and your valuation versus what the market is saying and a RICS valuation. So very interesting. So we talked previously about how an algorithm can kind of support and accelerate real estate investment decisions. But ultimately, it's not a market that is liquid or consistent enough to make quality investment decisions purely on the basis of data. And you mentioned earlier the kind of 10% of human input that you're using. So how would you then weigh up, and I sort of think I know the answer from your last one, but how would you weigh up the importance of results from, let's say, your artificial intelligence decision versus humans in a scenario where the two just fundamentally disagreed?
1: Yeah, I think it's a question that often comes up with investors, but it's what we explain is it's not a case of AI versus humans, but more about using each other, each one in the right way so that you're leveraging the strengths of each. And to us, it's crucial that decision making is not solely made by machines and human interventions are there at the right times in the process. So from our perspective, the technology very much informs the decision it doesn't make the decision. The decision is always made by the investment professional because ultimately machines can't be held accountable, but humans. And like I said before, the AI technology removes about 90% of the manual underwriting process, which is what a typical analyst would be doing. It's around building the models. It's about sourcing assumptions. It's about assembling information from different sources, it's cross-checking information, it's sourcing the best comparables. And these are often incredibly repetitive and mindless tasks. And those sorts of things can be automated and have machine learning introduced to actually improve them. So it enables the investment professional to make a relatively quick go or no-go decision by having all the information presented to them. So we're definitely not relying solely on AI
0: or technology from that perspective. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, and just in terms of geographical focus, um, really interested in the reasons behind, so you initially invested in the UK and then have shifted your focus to Germany, where you're investing now and what's been the journey to this and why?
1: Yeah, sure. So... Both markets, I think, hold huge opportunities for inward capital. It's not necessarily a case of favoring one over the other. But when we first launched a few years ago, if I'm honest, it was difficult to launch in the UK because there were a lot of negative sentiments around Brexit at the time. And, you know, the financing conditions back then just weren't making the returns stack up for investors from a risk perspective. So that's why we initially sort of refocused on Germany. And the resi market is a lot more established there, and um, we were successful in raising capital from investors over there. So, But having said that, we're now sourcing again in the UK. So we're, we're covering both the UK and Germany. One of the big step ups for us as a business over the past year is that we're now partnered with a number of major global institutional investors. So Although we're still focused today on UK and Germany, we're very much planning to be expanding into other countries towards the end of this year or beginning of next year, given how applicable this model is to pretty much any location that's got a
0: liquid rental market. That's really exciting. Well, good for you. And I guess I want to turn back again to you started talking about the refurbishment process earlier, and I thought that was really, really interesting. So when your investors acquire assets, you refurbish them. How have you systemized this process to ensure that there's speed as well as cost effectiveness over the property's life when there's so many different types of property and how long does it take and what's the average cost of a refurb?
1: Yeah, as you sort of rightly pointed out, standardizing that refurbishment process is a really key value driver. It means that the cost can be kept really lean and the assets can also be rapidly turned around for rental. I think the first major step of that is what I referred to earlier with the inspection app that we developed, where as part of the underwriting process, refurbishment calculator is really sophisticated and allows us to take a very granular review of the assets and what the refurbishment requirements are, what the cost really should be, and all of that information is then being handed over to the refurbishment team in a very comprehensive format so that they in turn can then quickly plan a highly standardized refurbishment. And our average property, I think, can be renovated and ready for rental within about four to six weeks of receiving keys. We're not doing massive structural works to any of the properties, but we're replacing bathrooms, kitchens sometimes, doing some electrics, new floors, basically giving it, you know, refreshing the property and making it fit for purpose and really what consumers want from their home. We also have quite a sophisticated OPEX and CAPEX calculator, which allows us to forecast what these future expenditures might be based upon a number of granular factors Taking into account, for example, things like the year of construction, Sorry. when the roof was last renovated, what type of heating system is in the building, what type of windows are on the building. All of these different factors allow us to automatically calculate and therefore make provisions for what future OPEX and CAPEX items will be. So all of those numbers are factored in front into the underwrite when making the go or no-go decision. And then as we continue with the life of the holding the property, we make sure that we're continuing to drive efficiencies throughout the entire value chain for our investors.
0: Awesome. And what is the average cost of a refurb that you would do? Let's say compared to...
1: It varies. It can be yeah. from like 2% of the value of an asset up to probably about 8 or 10% of the value of an asset. It varies.
0: Interesting. And I imagine it's been a real roller coaster, establishing the business. And as I said at the beginning, you're kind of leading the way in this space, but reaching the scale that you have. What would you say has been the biggest challenges and how have you overcome them?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges, because we're essentially trying to create a new asset class and unlock this new asset class for institutional investors. And there's therefore... A huge education journey that the institutional investors themselves need to go on. SFR is already relatively established in the US. So it's very helpful from that perspective that we can point to what's been happening in the US for the past several years. But it is only just starting to emerge in Europe. And there's a lot of investors which understandably can't necessarily visualize and imagine how the technology removes the inefficiencies of SFR. So they're often still stuck on, oh, but how can you manage these properties efficiently? How can you have a pepper potted Swiss cheese type of portfolio? To them, it goes against a lot of what they typically believe about residential. So there is an education process To go through for people. But I think a lot of investors are also recognizing the traditional methods of creating investment portfolios in general, whether it's residential or commercial, are being reinvented and technology is playing an increasing part. So, whilst especially because the past year has been so turbulent and unprecedented for many, that's also provided a lot of opportunity. I think. We've seen such an increase in mass adoption of technology in everyone's personal lives. And I think that's made investors a lot more open to the potential of how technology can also unlock investment processes for them. I think another silver lining has been that the uncertainty has led to significantly increased allocations to the residential sector as people look for secure long-term income and residential is typically seen as providing that safe haven for investors we saw at the beginning of this year, one of the big moves was Goldman Sachs buying the first single family housing portfolio that was brought to market in Europe. And that was sold to them for about 150 million in the Northwest of England.
0: So yeah, it's a really interesting case study. <laughs> yeah,
1: it is actually. It's really a sign of, you know, Goldman's are often seen as one of the first movers in sort of many different areas. So their signaling to the markets and their increased allocations to residential has also meant that in the past six months, we've seen a huge number of institutions coming to us, actually asking us to help them deploy into the SFR market. I think, Very exciting. Yeah, no, it is. It's great. And I think residential is definitely, as an asset class, it's here to stay and it's only going to grow. It's the most resilient asset class out there. And it's only going to continue to attract more inbound investment. You know, we can see how the US is doing. The US already has REITs completely dedicated and focused on trading purely SFR. So we expect that to eventually come to Europe as well. So we're super excited to be leading the charge on this in Europe and helping unlock this asset class.
0: Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So I have one final question. Is there anything that you wish you'd known earlier, whether about the technology or the real estate market or just, business in general, that other people could learn from?
1: I think we've seen how key it is to have technology and data front of mind the whole time. And I would really encourage people, even if they're coming from corporates, to not be afraid of technology or data. It's not an area that's reserved only for developers or data scientists. It's everyone's responsibility, really, to step up and ask questions of data. The developers and data scientists can only... Produce new products and new insights if the investment experts are setting the hypotheses and driving the questions of the data. So, I would really think it's so key that people are constantly thinking how can we do this better? How can we inform our decision making with data? How can processes be optimized with technology and constantly challenging what they're doing? And I recognize it's not easy. It's not easy to pick apart the um, traditional world of real estate, it's one of the most backward industries in the world. So picking it apart and then putting it back together in a more efficient tech-driven way is really challenging. It's definitely not easy. And I'm really proud of everything that we've managed to achieve at Imo Capital on that front. I think the second biggest learning is, and it's very much, I think, not unique to Imo Capital at all, but most startups would probably agree, is having patience and perseverance Because like I said, SFR is the new concept for a lot of people within the European investment market. And it goes against the grain of traditional practices. And with that, there often comes criticism and non-believers. But we've learned that we've had to take the lead for educating investors. And fortunately, we're now starting to see that our perseverance is paying off.
0: Oh, that's lovely nature. And I couldn't agree more, to be honest. <laughs> so that's great. And just finally, if listeners want to find out more about you or your business or anything about what you do, or just get in touch, what is the best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, they can check out our website, which is imo.capital. Or feel free to either drop me a note on LinkedIn or email me at samantha.kemp
0: at imo.capital. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you for listening. No, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.